I'm Stephen Baxter. And I'm Kara Myberg-Guzman. And this is Santa Cruz Local. Governor Gavin Newsom signed a raft of new laws in the past week that aim to help solve the state's housing crisis. Kara, you've done some reporting on all these new laws. It's been a busy week, huh? Yeah, the governor's been on a signing and vetoing spree the past couple nights. And this was the end of the legislative session, right? Yeah, correct. The governor's deadline was Sunday. The first bill we'll talk about is AB 411. That's funding for Santa Cruz. Kara, can you tell us about that bill? So AB 411 perhaps was the bill that was poised to make the biggest impact on affordable housing for Santa Cruz. It would have freed up $16 million of frozen redevelopment bonds and allowed the city to use it to fund affordable housing projects. Late last night, the governor actually vetoed this bill. He also vetoed a similar bill that would have done the same thing for the city of Glendale. It's not a total surprise that the governor vetoed this bill. The State Department of Finance opposed it. Newsom explained his veto in a letter. Basically, he said it would have taken money from schools. But it's more complicated than that. I mean, really, the opposition is that it would take money out of state coffers. We asked Chris Monroe, the superintendent of Santa Cruz City Schools, as well as the county's auditor controller's office, okay, what exactly is the effect on city schools? When we talked to Monroe initially, she was worried that it would take money away from city schools because she was basing her analysis on the State Department of Finance's analysis. But... When I emailed with Monroe this morning, she says all AB 411 would have done was delay the amount of money that city schools would get. It would not have changed the current funding levels for city schools. What are some of the other effects of the governor vetoing AB 411, the funding for Santa Cruz bill? Well, so the city economic development department had targeted three affordable housing projects as the recipient of this $16 million of funding. One, that controversial downtown library housing garage project. Number two, um, Pacific Station, a 100% affordable project right next to where the metro station is downtown. And number three, a teacher workforce housing project out near Natural Bridges. Again, when I emailed with Monroe this morning, she said that the veto of AB 411, it doesn't necessarily prevent that teacher project from getting built. It just makes the rents that much higher. Okay. So those three projects could still go forward, but they would have been facilitated by the bill? Correct. Okay. Got it. Okay. Do we want to move on? Yeah, sure. Let's talk about SB 330. We're calling this the Zoning and Housing Density Bill. We spoke about this one before. It's authored by Nancy Skinner. She's a state senator from Berkeley. Essentially, it's designed to speed up the pace of housing construction. She said much of the state's housing needs have been approved conceptually already through city's general plans and and other housing documents like that. But the things that stand in the way are fees and long permitting times and other things that cities do to block it. So this bill aims to greenlight housing that already meets the local zoning, number one. Second, it prevents cities from decreasing their housing density. Kara, tell us more about this bill. Sure. So people who have been watching the corridor plan and its death and the subsequent planning process have been eagerly awaiting the outcome of this bill. 
As you remember, the corridor plan was a process from a couple years ago. The goal was to try and update the city's zoning to match the higher density called for in the city's general plan. So there were busy intersections along Mission Street, Ocean Street, Soquel Avenue that would have seen higher density in its zoning. But that turned out to be a really contentious process. A big part of the community said loud and clear that we don't want more housing density along SoCal Avenue, especially. There was this neighborhood group, Save Santa Cruz, headed by former county supervisor Gary Patton, that organized and pretty much quashed the project. Two years ago, the city put it on hold because it was just too contentious. A few weeks ago, the city council actually killed the corridor plan once and for all. It was a motion spearheaded by council member Sandy Brown, supported by uh, council members Chris Crone, Drew Glover, and Vice Mayor Justin Cummings. They said that they wanted the city to move forward with, quote, resolving the conflicts, close quote, between the zoning and the general plan and <laughs> and here's the confusing part for us, preserving neighborhood character at the same time developing affordable housing in, quote, appropriate locations in the city. Yeah, and those things may be at odds with each other. How does SB 330 deal with things like the corridor plan then? I guess if I were to say it in a nutshell, SB 330 does allow cities to zone for less density than their general plan calls for as long as they put that same density somewhere else. So overall, as a city, you can't decrease the housing that your general plan calls for, but you can sort of shift it around within your city's boundaries. So for example, you could have zone for less density along SoCal Avenue than the general plan calls for, as long as you put it somewhere else. Like Um, downtown, Like downtown, which is possibly the least contentious place for housing density. Number two, the other thing SB 330 does in terms of approval of projects and land use planning is it forces cities to adopt objective, measurable design standards. So, for example, when a project comes before city council, you can't have city council members asking developers to, you know, oh, make this more aligned with the neighborhood character and make it more appealing. You know, you have to have very specific measurable standards. How hard is it for cities to decrease density in one area and then move that to another? I asked city planner Sarah Fleming about this, and she said that would be a general plan update, and that's not easy. So, for example, when the city was putting together its general plan 2030, that was a seven-year process. The corridor plan was another two-year process, and that's still not complete. Here's Fleming. Even if it's a mini uh, general plan update, I would expect that to cost somewhere in the range of seven hundred and fifty thousand to one point two million dollars. Wow! But just because of the number of meetings, the number of meetings, um, we would need to bring on an outside consultant that helps with that. Then there's a, a massive environmental analysis that needs to be done under the California Environmental Quality Act, and lots of times um, that is a big, big part of the cost. To sum up, SB 330 encourages cities to allow those densities that they've already approved through things like their general plan. 
one more thing I'll say about SB 330 is that it does have some local opposition. As you remember, Assemblymember Mark Stone was one of the few no votes against it. Also, Save Santa Cruz, that neighborhood group I told you about, they're against the bill. I talked to Patton via email a couple days ago. Their reasons for opposition, namely that because it caps permitting times and developer fees, it handcuffs city planning departments and limits that source of income. Save Santa Cruz and actually the League of California Cities have come out against it because it limits local control. And, and that shouldn't come as too much of a surprise because the whole most of these housing bills are meant for the state to be superseding cities, right? I thought Fleming's answer to this was interesting. Here's what she said about the planning department's stance on SB 330. That it definitely takes away some local control. And that is definitely one of the less desirable parts of the bill from a local government perspective. But that said, I don't, at least we did not feel that it was so extreme that it was going to be something that was going to cause us to want to recommend that uh, the city come out against the bill. Oh, okay. Got it. Okay. It wasn't enough of a financial impact for the planning department to be, you know, seriously concerned. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely an impact and it will definitely, you know, put the strain on the existing resources that we have. But the certainty that it provides long term, both to the community and to the uh, the residential and, you know, um, the community community and the development community, you know, you got to do that cost benefit analysis. And it seems like this comes out on the winning end, at least for okay. our perspective. It seems to me that another takeaway of this bill is that it streamlines the process for people trying to build housing of all stripes, affordable, market rate, etc. Right. Yeah. I've heard from in talking with developers that permitting time is an obstacle because the longer you wait, the longer your investors have to wait, the harder it is to get a building paid for. So, Kara, what's next for the corridor plan? The city council is going to hear about the SB 330's impact on what's next for the sequel to the corridor plan. It'll come up at the October 22 meeting. Fleming told me that the staff's recommendation will be that the staff apply for grant money, about $310,000, to get a consultant to come up with those objective, measurable standards, something that the community can agree on and move forward towards this reconciliation process, she calls it. Let's talk about the bills that have to do with ADUs now. These are accessory dwelling units, also known as granny flats, in-law units, casitas, secondary units, whatever you want to call them. There are several bills that were signed into law that have to do with in-law units. We're going to talk about three of them. The first one is AB881. That has to do with in-law unit owners. Kara, can you tell us a little bit about that one? What AB881 does is it limits cities from requiring that owners live on the property in order to rent that that in-law unit. Um, It's not a blanket prohibition. It basically creates this window from January 1, 2020 to January 1, 2025. For permits issued during that time, cities can't require 
owners to live on the property. Right now, the city requires that owners live on the property in order to rent out their in-law unit. Last year, when the city was updating its in-law unit rules, it considered lifting this owner occupancy requirement. But in the end, the city decided not to. One of the big concerns from residents was that owners would rent out to students, UCSC students, who would rent both the front house and the ADU. And, you know, that would have a big impact on neighborhoods if all of a sudden you have nine students, you know, living sure. next door. We should say, too, this bill is not retroactive, right? And it does not apply to existing in-law units. Yeah. So the existing permits, there's already this land use agreement between the owners and the city that requires an owner to live on the property. So... Right. It's not retroactive. Here's Sarah Noisy, a senior planner for the city, on why she thinks this lifting of the owner occupancy rules will have a huge impact on the city. This opens the door for investors to develop ADUs. One of the challenges that is just sort of inherent in ADUs is that you're always dealing with novice developers. You know, every homeowner that builds an ADU, the vast majority of them have never gone through a permitting process before. They're not familiar with it. It's expensive. It's time consuming. So, um, you know, it's, it can be challenging for these folks to sort of work their way through. And, and one of the you know, advantages that investors have is that they may have been through this on other properties before. Now they own single family home properties and so they can go through a development process. They know how to hire a contractor. They know how to get permits. They know how to kind of work through that. So, and then they also have the capital more likely, you know, the financing is going to look really different for an investor than it would for a, a homeowner. So I do think that is going to have an impact. It seems like there's some positives and negatives in this law, right? Yeah. On the one hand, you could say that this law could have an impact on neighborhood character. On the other hand, you could look at it as a way of increasing the city's housing stock. Moving on to the second law having to do with in-law units, let's talk about AB 68. This one is about accessory unit lot size. This law limits cities' ability to require minimum lot sizes and parking for in-law units. It also allows the construction of two in-law units on lots in residential or mixed-use zoning, assuming these proposals meet certain state criteria. How does this impact the city of Santa Cruz? Current law in the city of Santa Cruz says that in-law units must be a certain percentage of the lot size, no larger. That means that in certain neighborhoods like the Circles and around the harbor where you see smaller lot sizes, you also see smaller in-law units. This law says that the city can no longer base in-law unit sizes as a percentage of the lot size unless it also requires a minimum 800 square foot in-law unit. This law also requires 16 foot heights and four foot setbacks for those in-law units. One more thing about this law is it also requires that the city process permits for in-law units within 60 days. One thing to remember is that the city of Santa Cruz historically has approved about 30 in-law units per year. Last year, the city loosened its in-law unit rules, but it didn't see a huge jump in the number of permits it has approved. Here's Sarah Noisy on what she thinks will be the impact of these new state laws on in-law units. 
ADUs are not a silver bullet. I want to be really clear about that. When we talk about housing in Santa Cruz, we need a lot of tools on the table. ADUs are one thing. They're really good at producing rental housing. I don't know that it's always a natural fit for creating affordable rental housing because those costs, like I said, when you're building a new ADU, those costs are not insignificant. So it's going to become more accommodating. That doesn't mean that building a home is an easy process. More parcels are going to be eligible. There are certain fees that are going to be lowered. This is not going to be a cheap process. Construction costs continue to go up. You know, cost per square foot locally has been between $250 and $350 a square foot, and I don't see that going down. So that is going to continue to be a barrier for folks. And so it's going to be a matter of financing. And so those like macroeconomic forces, you know, borrowing rates, lending rates, um, they're going to have an effect. The third bill we'll talk about having to do with in-law units is AB 671. This is a law that makes cities encourage affordable housing within those in-law units. Can you talk about this law? This law says that cities like Santa Cruz have to include in their housing plans that they submit to the state programs for affordable rent for in-law units. When I talked to the staff in the city planning department, they said this will be really difficult for Santa Cruz to create because, you know, it costs so much for homeowners to build and then permit their in-law units, how do you then ask them to delay recouping their costs by charging less rent? Luckily, this law also requires the state to provide some money and grants to facilitate these programs. We'll see how this plays out in Santa Cruz. The city staffers said they'd be looking to see how other cities create their housing elements. Santa Cruz is still a couple years away from having to do this. The last bill we'll talk about is AB 1482. This is the rent cap bill. We've talked about this one before. This basically says that landlords cannot increase the rent by more than 5% plus inflation each year. This doesn't apply to single family residential, so it may not have a big impact in Santa Cruz in that way. This law also includes just cause eviction rules. Basically, it says that landlords must have a real reason for evicting tenants. The bill lists what some of those reasons are, like say if a landlord or their family is moving in, or if the landlord is renovating the place. Basically, landlords can't evict tenants for arbitrary reasons. These just cause eviction rules and the rent cap rules apply to the same types of housing. Say you're interested in more housing and affordable housing in the city of Santa Cruz. Is there any bill that sticks out to you that you think is going to improve that situation? Um, I don't know if there's really one bill that does it. The bills that we shared with you here, they have to do with limiting cities' ability to block housing development. I think what we saw in this legislative cycle is that the governor is prioritizing housing, and he's going to sign legislation that makes that happen. But with the exception of AB 411. AB 411 being the bill that would have brought $16 million of affordable housing money back to Santa Cruz. I think that was a big disappointment for a lot of people in the city, a lot of affordable housing advocates. We'll see if that comes back in the next legislative cycle. What's your take? <laughs>
While I see the pluses and minuses of in-law units, to be honest, I live on the west side. I know lots of people who have in-law units. I think that it's a way of having affordable housing in some sense. Thank you to all our members. You're supporting fair and accurate local journalism in Santa Cruz County. Thank you especially to our Guardian level members, Elizabeth and David Doolin, Chris Necklison, Patrick Riley, and the Kelly family. If you'd like to become a member, visit santacruzlocal.org membership. A lot of you have subscribed to our podcast on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. To get the full Santa Cruz Local experience, consider signing up for our email newsletter. That's got more news and more upcoming events. It's at santacruzlocal.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at VSCLocal. Until next time, I'm Stephen Baxter. And I'm Kara Myberg guzman Thanks for listening to Santa Cruz Local. <laughs>